Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for Episode 3 of Wuxia Workshop. And today we're going to go over a number of different topics, and uh, I think we're starting with our sharing inspiration segment where we talk about movies that we saw this week and try to relate them to design and Wuxia and various things. And I think the first movie on the list was something that you chose, The Thing from 1982. Uh, do you want to walk it in for us? Uh, yeah, actually, and, and the, the important thing to remember about The Thing is that it's actually the John Carpenter remake of The Thing. The, the original Thing was, uh, I think it was a, just kind of a standard B-monster movie from the 50s, and it was captivating to his imagination because it, even though it was kind of a standard schlocky B-movie, uh, it, was, it was more about the, um, the it's about like a shape-shifting alien monster, and it was, it was struck and structured in such a way that it was more about like the people in the movie not knowing which one of them might be the thing, and so it kind of had like this spy horror element thing, and um, and and yeah, like that's the original inspiration. But what he did with it was really fantastic because like, and and, and I'm sure you just watched this too. The creature effects in that movie wound up being the star far more than the tension. Although again, that that was pretty impressive. Uh, it's a movie with a really strong atmosphere, really colorful, interesting characters, a great premise, really good visual effects, and it is just scary and and, and like visually arresting and fascinating. So, so let's tell 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 us all about your most recent viewing of things. I rewatched it myself too, but remember, I watch this thing every couple of months because I love it so much. Oh, oh, so this is like a big one for okay. Um, I I I haven't seen this since again since the '90s. I remember one of my friends in high school really liked this movie, and so whenever I went over his house, this movie would be on. And and that, and the last time I saw it was one time over his house. And 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 also the last time I saw it was on an old tube TV. You know, like we didn't have the HD TVs back then. And so, the thing that struck me watching it this time, because I now have like a widescreen TV and like a Blu-ray player, it, it's a really well-made movie. Like it really looks nice on screen. They really get the Arctic sort of environment down, and it's uh, it 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 just it just looks really nice. And it's, it, the a lot of the scenes are very striking, and a lot more so than I recalled them being. Um, but my heater went out over the weekend. And so I think on Monday is when I decided to rewatch it. And I was like, well, you know, it's like 40 or something in here. I'm going to watch the thing and hopefully it'll help immerse me into the experience. It actually did. I found it very immersive. It added a lot. Uh, it uh, added a lot to the to, to my enjoyment. And uh, and yeah, so I mean, again, it's it's the thing. I, I think for me, the th I, two things about this movie that sort of, I guess, stood out watching this time. Number one, the practical effects really hold up in a surprising way. Like, uh, I've seen a Some lot of movies. Yeah, because I've seen a lot of movies from the 80s where I watch them again and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember how bad things used to be. And this is one where I was sort of longing to see more practical effects. And, and in fact, I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole on YouTube looking because I, I saw it. I was like, I, I, need, I, I, I'm not done watching this. I need to go and see other people's thoughts on the thing. And, 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 and I guess there was a remake of it uh, fairly recently. And they yeah, tried. I well, the thing is, apparently what they were trying to do is they, they started out originally wanting to use mainly practical effects. But the, 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 the executive stepped in and they're like, no, 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 we need to have a lot of CGI. And. Again, I don't know who's right or wrong in this situation, but what people were saying is that it really kind of ruined the 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 visual effect of that film. 
Um, I haven't seen the remake. So and just, we, huh? we really should watch that one and compare them. I because I watched that one too when it came out, and I remember I didn't hate it, but like I don't remember it. You know, like that's that's kind of where that one is for me. But the 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 John Carpenter's version is that's memorable. Like you don't you don't soon forget some of the things you see in that movie. It's almost like David Cronenberg levels of like it's because all the the thing is like this protoplasmic fleshy thing, but it's not. It's not ill-defined. Uh, one of the things that drives me crazy a lot, and, and this happened in the uh, the, the recent, uh, not recent, recent, but the somewhat recent Superman uh, movie, uh, Man of Steel, where at the end of it he's fighting this big alien artifact monster, and it's just a bunch of black, gooey tentacles that's all ill-defined. I'm like, how are you supposed to punch that? But the thing isn't just a bunch of protoplasm. It's like something, or turning into something, and everything it turns into is horrible. Okay. It's, fleshy and pulpy and bony and veiny and it's just so gross and goopy Ugh, i love it the yeah the, the the effects in this really get and and, it, and there's sort of like a um i mean there's like a body horror thing going on too yeah i mean that's why i was kind of cronenbergy because yeah. it reminded me a lot of the fly remember that the cronenberg oh yeah, fly? yeah i remember the fly yeah Cronen- in fact one of the videos that i watched on youtube after i saw this was a was a panel with um uh, what's his name? Uh, Landis, uh, uh, John Carpenter, and Cronenberg. Uh, oh all, my all God. T- Like right after uh, this was before the fly, but it was it was like right after the thing was made or around that time, I think. Um, and it was a really interesting discussion. Um, but, yeah, uh, I gotta find that. That sounds yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link to it. It was a pretty interesting conversation that they had. Uh, and again, it's you know, I, I kind of like going back and looking at some of these. See, I like seeing how people talked about things. Like, in, even if it was a time when I was alive, you know, going back to like '82, there's like there's a whole other conversation going on than you have now. Do you know what I mean? And so it's always interesting to see how those evolve over time and what sort of pressing issues people bring to the table to talk about. Um, but, but the other thing about the movie that that obviously people like about it and it's the thing that i i think is what really stands out is 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 the the paranoia the the yeah. the way that the characters just don't know who they can trust and they don't know who's the thing and the movie's really effective i think at managing that aspect of it um even to the point that at the end you don't you know the ending is so ambiguous you know, yeah you know, it is because so, you're like wait a minute so let me ask you this, since this is a movie you really like what's your what's your take on the ending do you have a uh, a take, or do you just sort of accept it for what it is? That's a hard one. Because, like, on the one hand, like, you sort of don't want a horror movie to have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, so what you want is you want there to... Uh, you want that to be the thing and the the guy are sitting there, and that's the last little moment that you get. It's a real lady and the tiger kind of thing. And, like, you sort of want that to have been, like, the dark version of that, where it's like, oh, it's the tiger. <laughs> that's definitely the thing... It kills him and assimilates him, and then the world is doomed. Because that, I don't know, that, that sort of turns it into a nihilistic movie, though. Which, uh, I don't know, the premise is apocalyptic when you're right down to it. That's what is so frightening about it, is because it's not just that they're fighting for their lives, which they are. They're fighting for the fate of the whole world. That's that's why they go to the extremes they go to, where at the end of like blowing up the base and everything. So, if that is the thing in the end... That movie is ultimately like, okay, they failed. They, they tried their best, but they're doomed. The alien was too crafty for them, and it beat them. And if 
it isn't, or if he manages to overcome the thing and he dies in the snow anyway, that's still kind of a downer ending. But it is one that has like that little shred of hope where it's like, hey, look, they saved the whole world, though. They all went down fighting. Kind of a Captain Nemo ending. So it sort of depends on the mood I'm in when I'm watching it. And I like that it's a Lady and the Tiger ending because I get to determine how I feel about it afterwards. Yep. Yep. I, usually I like the Tiger. I like the really dark uh, ending of that one because it makes the whole thing so much scarier. See, I like to think that the bottle has gasoline in it and that that he's about to use his flamethrower when he gets the energy. But uh, but that but I don't know that just because I don't know there's something about the, the the laugh that he has when when what's his name Childs is that the, the when he drinks the yeah, the yeah when he drinks the the I think it's whiskey or something like that or bourbon. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know. So. Uh, we'll get to Buddha's palm in a little bit, but I did want to sort of tie because people were maybe confused. Why are we talking about the thing? And and I wanted to tie it to Wuxia. Uh, yes, this you know, is important. So so I I want to get to what you know why 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 you were interested in this movie. But but my immediate thought was you know like just watching this because we're gonna we're, one of the things that we're gonna try to talk about today is genre blending and how to how you can blend different genres into Wuxia. And my my thought was this would be really cool to sort of use on an NPC who's taking a really strange cultivation path. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like uh, a character who can sort of do who who can who can who can do what the thing can do, um, but his abilities grow over the course. Of, like you know, like it would depend on the game you're using, but. If the game has levels, or we, we have a character uh, in the in the intro thing, uh, you even got because I only seen the act one of that one. In act two, uh, when the the sand demon guy shows up, that's what he does. Like his his genes were all screwed up by the uh, the empire as like this celestial punishment, so he can take parts of monsters of the people and just blend them to himself. Yeah, and like it, so, so and that, that's that's a good point. The thing is an alien monster. And like when you when you want to tie something that's that weird back to Wuxia, you've got to understand that one of the things about Wuxia and the, the the conceits of it is that it's human beings cultivating their personal excellence. So that same kind of element where you've got like this weird protoplasmic monster can exist, but the the beginning framework of it isn't going to be it came from outer space and it's an alien. The beginning framework is going to be this person is developing their excellence and they found a strange path to take, like you're, like you're describing. Yeah. So it's, it's original framing has a very different kind of, uh, different, different setup. No, I, I, I agree. Though I will say this, I saw a movie recently called the thousand faces of Dunja. It's a Shui mm-hmm. Hark or Choi Hark, uh, production. And it was directed by Yuan Wu Ping. And it's, it's a big sort of, you know, epic kind of blockbuster type film, but in that movie, they they actually do have the thing come from outer space. Um, oh, now it's awesome. not it's not a proper wuxia movie like like a like a wuxia purist would see this movie and say, well, that's got like you know elements of Transformers and elements of Men in Black and all these other things. Uh, it's 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 a remake of one of his uh, of an earlier film called Miracle Fighters, but they take a a huge number of liberties with where they go with it. But it was actually really in- I mean. I'm still not sure what I think about the film. I've been holding off even reviewing it because I, I still don't know how I feel about this movie. But I will say, as far as, you know, gaming material goes, I think it's one of the better films out there to, to borrow on for this kind of thing. Um, I think the only trouble that you would run into in, in any kind of Chinese-type setting is whatever cosmology you happen to be using. You know, if, the, if, you know if, if aliens are an impossibility due to the cosmology... 
that might you might have to come up with some other explanation. But um, but it was really interesting. It was really interesting to have sort of the 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 martial world connect with this this power that's you know a, a, an alien being. Um, but yeah, but with your stuff, you know, I I I. I, I I, that's what I wanted to ask you: is how much of it, it was this movie? Were you consciously drawing on this movie in any of your material? Or I, I think with with good old Sandy, I was like with him. The, and the, the issue with inheriting um, characters, which is, I mean, the whole thing that I'm doing is basically it's journey to the West again. Mm-hmm. But one of the issues with inheriting characters is that if you have a character that's kind of a dud, like Sandy was in the actual journey to the West, you don't like Sandy. Think, like, <laughs> He's boring. <laughs> like a- after his intro, which is cool, he's got the he's got the skull necklace. That's really righteous. Uh-huh. But after that, he's just like, I'm here. I got a okay. Stick. Okay, fair I enough. Stick. I mean, Dog. I guess I guess Pigsy is more. Pigsy is my jam, yo. Yeah, he... I, I got into Pig. Actually, Pigsy wound up being a really interesting character too, which I have to go into. Pigsy a little is very memorable. I will say that it's it's a lot easier to forget Sandy. I think I think you might be onto something there. Um, hey. and... I, it's not that he's a terrible character; he's just dull comparatively. Because you've got you've got Monkey there, you've got mm-hmm. Sun Wukong, uh, you've got um, I, I call him Trippy Taka. That's not his actual name. He's going to get the Trippy Taka. I just call him Trip because I like that better. But like you got you got the monk, you've got the freaking Monkey King, you've got the shape shifting pig demon. Then you got this big guy with a stick. <laughs> is that right? So I wanted to make big guy with a stick a little more like, and of course I. I have the great advantage that I have David Ramirez on my side, and that guy is super genius when it comes to creativity. I think he was the guy that originally pitched him as this kind of like, well, let's make him some, let's let's go with, David knows a lot about Chinese mythology that I don't know. So he's like, well, there's a lot more stuff here, and we can blend that with this. Mm. So when it came to, when it finally got handed over to me, I was just there to do the rules. So I'm like, well, okay, we've got this great idea of someone who's, genetically been like screwed with but that kind of makes them like malleable in a genetic way so i i i went straight for the jugular with the thing and anything from cronenberg and stuff like that i'm like gimme 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 yeah so um yeah there's a lot of gro- wonderful grotesque stuff like that because it's something i'm into well how uh, do you like because i because i feel like with and again journey of the west i know is not it's more mythic than wuxia but like it obviously get there's there's so much crossover um but you know, a, 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 a lot of times I find that when people are talking about wuxia, they're very reluctant to bring other things into it. There's like a, there's oh, a, yeah. there's more of a line around what you're supposed, what, what people feel you can add to it. But I feel like when when I go and I I, I you know look at a, a wuxia novel or I watch a really good wuxia movie, the things that often set them apart are what they decide to borrow from and add to it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you look at like a Gulong book, which will oftentimes have sort of like detective elements or uh you know noir or something like that in there and uh, you know it i i feel uh, in in certain movies like the one that we're going to talk about in a moment we'll borrow freely from <laughs> from from, oh, yeah. from genres uh i i feel like that can really add to the experience so i think it's i think it's a i think it's fine i, I think i think i think that sort of thing is especially in a game especially in a game where the point is oh yeah in, in a game and I like to point out, like the reason that we, and I think that people do get pretty a little bit maybe too uptight, and I've, I'm guilty of this too. When they're defining things like wuxia, 
And it's important to keep in mind that, yes, we do make certain that we use language to mean things. The reason we have wuxia as a genre, and we've got some like strict definitions of that, is just so we know what we're talking about, yeah. though. It's not to keep all creativity within yeah. that little genre box. Yeah, It's exactly. important to separate those things in your mind. Yeah, because I think it's, it's really useful to know what the, ter what the term is supposed to mean. Yes. Um, that's incredibly useful. It's, it, I, I think where I get frustrated is when knowing what it means becomes... Uh, something that constrains the gaming of it, then it... Uh, you don't want to... It, it is so futile to fight against, like you were talking about, the kind of cultural cross-pollination. Don't even try, man. It, someone is going to make something awesome that you think should never exist, and you're going to be really wrong. Sorry. Well, <laughs> well, and so much of it, so much of it is a product of that. I mean, I mean there's just, there's, you know, they, they, you know, like a, a lot of the great directors, they, they you know, they're, they're not operating in isolation. They're, they're drawing on you know, things that were going on in Japan and things that were going on in the States. There's, there's, you know, Western elements being incorporated into a lot of these movies, you know, so it's, it's, uh, I, I think the genre blending is, is, is pretty, pretty important. Um, it is, uh, case in point, uh, the, the Journey to the West thing, one of the reasons I pitched so hard for it is, is because of a manga called Monkey that was done by uh, Katsuyu Tarada. And like, that again, it's 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 just draining to the West, but it's reimagined in this super surreal, like 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 future punk kind of way. It's amazing, like it's visually breathtaking, and it's extremely well told, and it's pulpy, and just oh, it's so good. Like Dark Horse did a release of it, and like if you can get your your grubby mitts on Monkey by Katsuya Tarada, do it <laughs> because you'll know everything that I love about Journey to the West, envisioned by a, a Japanese artist. And like he uses like he uses it as an excuse, not really an excuse, but like as a platform for exploring current social issues through the lens of modern, really high class manga art. Mm -hmm. And you know, like I, I'm an American, he's Japanese, and it's a Chinese story. Yeah, that's that's some serious cultural blend and drift right there. No, and that happens a lot. It happens with all kinds of movies too, and all kinds of kinds of books i i just i just feel like sometimes the again it's good to know what it is but it's also good to remember that there's you know like i think the people making this stuff they don't want those rails necessarily yeah. inhibiting them um at least that's the impression i get from a lot of the directors that i watch uh you know especially i mean obviously someone like Choi hark you know maybe to an extreme degree but uh but even other other directors that are just sort of drawing on on things like westerns and noir um you know, you look at a lot of these Cho Yuen movies, and they have that. And I think that would bring us naturally to Buddha's Palm, which, uh, oh, which, which, uh, you know, uh, I think you you watched last night. Um, yep, and, just watched it. It's fresh. And, and so, why don't we, why don't we get your impression of the movie before we? <laughs> I'm gonna lead in everything today. Okay, so I'm a big fan. At seeing as I'm kind of creating the successor game to Legends of the Will and Weapons of the Gods, I'm a big fan of Manhao, which is which is Chinese comic books. This movie is like watching a live-action Chinese comic book. It's super cool. Um, it is it is zany. It is colorful. It is it is almost cartoonishly action-packed. It is it is thrilling. And as I said to my wife last night, I can't take my eyes off this movie. It was so much fun to watch. Oh man, I like you almost don't even know where to start. I, I think even the movie struggled with that because it starts out and it's like this super powerful dude mastering a, a magical kung fu technique in a cave and like his disciple 
breaks through the stone into the cave, and he's like, Master, you're dying! And he's like, yup, here, have a cloak. Uh, and then it's like, and then he killed the entire martial world. Twenty years later. And you're just like, wait a minute, movie. Yeah, yeah everything in this movie dude. is it, ex- it moves at an accelerated clip. Like, you get these chunks of story, and then boom, like, 20 years later, or now they're over here, and now they're over here, and and it's it's really I don't know this this film is I found one of the hardest ones to shake out of my mind after I saw it. That yeah, it gets in there, um, <laughs> and and there's and and again it's it's almost not even worth discussing the story because the story is so. Uh, it's, there, there's it, there is a three story. Worth of actual story. Well, like, that's the thing. But the story isn't what you come for. You come yeah. for the characters. Yeah, yeah. You know? and those characters are unreal. There, there is a story, but you don't, you don't, you don't tend to sort of sit there and sort of chart it out in your mind as it's going. You, you're really sort of focused on on all of the all of the colors, all of the effects, all of the characters. The characters in this are really kind of the, you know, they they pop on the screen and you and you instantly know you know, what they're all about. And they also make a lot of interesting comedic choices in this movie. You know, yeah, there's, it's, there's it's very much a lot of comedy to it. Yeah, because there's that scene where, like, the, 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 the martial world sort of shows up at the crime scene and they're, and they're rebuking him. And, and, all of the, and, and, they're, and most of them are characters you haven't seen at all up until this point, and they're all haggard, and, and, they, and they don't look like they... Like, normally, the people that play the actors of the martial world are are really charismatic actors that are that are you know that have like carry themselves a certain way and these look like all the people that typically play like wait staff and grandmothers and 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 like man selling like, buns face, it's all like shoved up to the side it's like oh yeah that guy hit me in the face yeah and they're just so they're so diminutive compared to all of the other characters that it, it just it, it's really a striking scene but but yeah, the the movie it, it kind of veers into comedy, and it's what I would describe as is is, is Gonzo Wusha. I I think this qualifies as kind of a, a you know you 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 have the so number one you know there's basically a lightsaber in the movie. They there's a yep. there's a there's a they sword. But they think of the same sound effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah they they oh. were and and interesting. I think uh, it was a green lightsaber, and I think it was made before Return of the Jedi. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, so... Uh, so it was 82, so yeah, what's the timeline on that? We need to look that up Because wasn't Return of the Jedi 83? I mean, I could be mistaken. I think you're right. Think you're right. Um, <laughs> now, maybe maybe the green lightsaber made an appearance before that that I'm, you know, and I forget or I'm not aware of it. Because, I mean, the end of the Empire was him losing the blue one, and then it pretty much wrapped after that, as I recall. Okay. I think we were all like... Because he, he whips it out next to Jabba's palace, right? In Turn of the Jedi. Yeah, that's that when I remember it. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. I think there was a little gulf there. And uh-huh. I think, I think that, I think that sword might have showed up beforehand. Hmm. So, hmm. but, but there's a lightsaber. There's, you know, there, there's, there's a dragon. Let's not forget the live action dragon. Yeah, that that looks like it's out of Jim Henson's workshop. Um, he's almost like a, uh, like a, um, like a foo lion or a, um, a Biji or Bixie. Uh, I'm not, you know, he, he's a, 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 I think the character's name is Demung, and he's this, this, this really sort of large, uh, you know, kind of funny, fuzzy creature, uh, and, and he, and he, and he yeah, again, I, I, I feel that he looks like he's just pulled right out of a Jim Henson movie, but, uh. Yeah, I, I kept, I kept making fun of him, like he was Falcor, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a Falcor vibe. He's got a Fal- Falcor vibe for sure. Yeah, he even saves people. And, like, I almost... I, I'm not sure how much of it was intentional comedy. Like, I want to say it was 100%, like, they wrote this knowing it was a joke. But, like, a recurring thing that happens is someone falls off a little mountain city, the, the city of mist, and that dragon will just swoop by and grab him, bring him oh, right yeah. to the cave. I don't, I don't think those were funny. I don't think those were meant to be funny. I think there were things that were meant to be funny. Like, like Bigu of Eastern Island was, I believe, meant to be a humorous character. Oh, man, Bigu. Um, we got to talk about Bigu okay. of Eastern Island because the thing about this character is he announces his name like Leroy Jenkins and where he's from before he walks into any scene. Bigu of Eastern Island! You'll hear him yodeling that from off camera. And everyone will like, look over like, what? And then he just comes strutting in like, it's me, people. Deal with it. Yeah, he- I love Bigu so much. He wandered onto the screen and I immediately I turned to my wife and I was like, that's my favorite character. I know in my bones. <laughs> well, 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 number one, I think a lot of it is because it's played by Lolier, who is just one of his strengths as a Shaw Brothers actor was playing villains. He played he he's the guy who basically you know Im, you know gave us the version of Paime that we know. Um, you know he 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 played him in like three movies at least. And, that was Paime, really? Yeah, yeah, the uh, Paime from um, uh, Clan of the White. Hmm. From Kill Bill, right? Well, Kill Bill, but that was based on execution. There's a he, well, it's a historical character, number one. But in Executioners from Shaolin and Abbot of Shaolin and Clan of the White Lotus, where in that version technically it's not Paime, it's like his sect brother, but it's basically Paime. Um, Is it the same kind yeah, of same same exact appearance, but slightly different abilities? Um, huh. But yeah, no. If you watch Lens. Executioners from Shaolin, and and you'll uh, if if you if you if you liked Paime from Kill Bill. Uh, you know, I did. Yeah, Executioners from Shaolin is definitely worth seeing. As is uh, Clan of the White Lotus. Um, and Abbot of Shaolin's really good, but that's a little harder to get your hands on these days. Um, but uh, but yeah, but Lolier, he's an outstanding actor, and 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 he really is quite brilliant at the comedy that he's doing. And, and you know, he, he has the whole scene where he's like, you know, I chop 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 chop, and he sends out all these these. Uh, <laughs> you know, these beams of energy and, he, and, and that scene where he, the main character is played by Derek Yi and he, he goes up to Derek Yi's character and tries to make him be a student. And he says, ah, oh, but we look exactly alike. And they look nothing alike. And, no, not even a little bit. And, and he's like, what are you talking about? We look nothing alike. And he says, no, I have a nose and you have a nose and I have eyes. I, and you I have, have eyes. eyes. Look at your eyes. You also have eyes. Yeah. And it's just like, Oh my god! I love the the chop again. Going back to the chop, chop, chop. He throws literal green beams of energy out at this just tar paper shack, and he's like, "See?" And the guy just looks, and this nothing happened to the shack. Yeah. And so he's like, "Okay, wait a minute." So he he uses some kind of super breath to blow it over, and still nothing happens. And the guy starts leaving. He's like, "Wait, wait, no! It's super powerful. Trust me." Yeah. He. Oh my god! What a great character. Yeah, I, I I think he really completes the movie. I mean, there's a lot of good things about this film. I also like Kara Hoy's character. Um, uh, you know, she and and you know, I, I and I, I think Derek Yi is a good lead. A lot of people I've heard complain about him as a as a leading character, but I really like Derek Yi. Yeah, he was great. And he uh, was really like I really liked him. Uh, he he there wasn't a, a ton to him. Like he wasn't super present, and I think this is because he was playing alongside of guys like that. That just when they're on screen, it's all you can think about. Yeah, yeah. And he, so I think and that's the only weakness. I would yeah, say. Yeah, because he's he's playing the protagonist, so 
Um, it's I'm almost a of... secondary character in his own movie. It's interesting. But uh, but yeah, and, and again, this is a movie where it really you, you get a, a good sense of what a martial world looks like, like how it's populated, and you know that's so that's so essential to the genre. But it it's willing to do crazy things. You got like the golden egg with the 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 red energy beam that can cure scars and and blindness. Uh, you know you 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 have the soon be Ling character with the weird mask on her face. I um, loved that mask. Can we talk about just some of the amazing visual yeah. effects in this movie? Like the the mask was really creepy. Yeah. It, and like it was shiny, like it was lacquered or plastic or something, and like it all it looked like a like a really poor facsimile of a face, and it was just so unnerving hearing her like mask muffled voice underneath that thing with a painted on staring monster eyes. That was great. Great stuff. Um I, and I understand that there were some limitations to how they could do special effects, and a lot of that was clearly painted onto the celluloid in post-production. Yeah. But for that, for that, it looked really good. Well, it was rotoscoping. Uh, it's rotoscoping. And I think for that, that period... Yeah, that was rotoscope. I'm pretty sure. Um, and I, I think it was... I, there's a few movies that do this. So, like, there's a... there's a You know, towards the you know early 80s, a lot of these Shaw Brothers wuxia films, they some of them really start taking some crazy chances. Um, oh, wow. And... And, and this is one of those movies. There's also a movie like Holy Flame of the Martial World. There's another movie. I can't remember the exact year it was made, but Bastard Swordsman gets kind of into this territory. And there are some, I would say, less successful attempts, but still worth checking out. Um, I think it's Voyage of the Doomed or Journey of the Doomed is one of them. Um, and there's a couple of others that, that sort of, you know, would leap to mind. But it's, it's a... Um, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just, I just love sort of the the the, the rampant use of those visuals because uh, yeah, it, and not they're, they're rampant. They're all over this movie, and like they look, they look good. Like there's there's a unified look to this movie that you wouldn't, you don't. I didn't anticipate that. I was like, this is going to be zany, and it's going to the, the opening credits where they have all the little cutouts of the Manhau characters, and there's like fire in the background. They're like, this is happening now. I was like, okay, this is going to be a little, a little. Uh, uneven no not really that's the only scene that's like that almost all of it is a real unified look which i mean considering you've got literal cartoons sharing the screen with brightly colored uh like uh costumes and set pieces and things it's stunning that they were able to like unify the visuals so that nothing really stood out as oh that's just that looks terrible no not really it's got a real clash of the titans kind of vibe when you get into it yeah um, and we were talking about like you know how do you define Gonzo and you know one of one of the things that we were saying uh, you know you know kind of based on what people have said online is uh, you know it's sort of this exaggerated sort of unfiltered imagination of uh, that that gets into the surreal but is coherent it's not like it's not like just yeah. all you know it's not just you know uh, uh, th- you know things kind of match things kind of match in an interesting way. And... Yeah, like it's not it's not zany, it's not wacky, it's not goofy. Well, it can be kind of those things, but like like you said, it has a sort of underlying structure that informs it. Uh, like for example, Rocket Raccoon as in Guardians of the Galaxy is a really good example of something that's Gonzo because he makes perfect sense in the context of that universe, but he's still a tiny sass talking raccoon with a bunch of guns. Yeah, fight aliens. Yeah, sure, that all makes sense. That's true, but that's pretty Gonzo. <laughs> No, and that's what a lot of the stuff in this sort of feels like to me. 
Uh, and also, I feel like the energy level through this, because like you said, it's zany, but it's almost, I would almost use like the word frenetic to describe it. Like, because yeah. it, it gets intense at times. It takes that same energy it's using to make you laugh to suddenly have the main character spinning around and, 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 and muttering and, 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 and accumulating his power in a really dangerous way. And, 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 and in those moments, it goes from being humorous to intense. And, and, uh. That that's a really good point because you're you're right. The energy level is unified across the whole thing. Like, and sometimes it's kind of played for laughs, but other times it's not. They use the same energy level and they have a different emotional underpinning to it. Uh, like you said, sometimes like it's when uh, when they're getting poisoned or when they're having to like transfer, like whenever uh, uh that that last scene where Old Devil is getting tortured by the the drums or the Heavenly Foot. And he's just sitting there like, ah, oh, come on, put his palm work for me. And he keeps having to clutch his ears because they're about to spurt blood. It's like that scene is shot like some kind of music video. It's like cut, cut, cut. It's really high energy. But you're like, it's it's almost gut-wrenching because you're like, man, this guy's really getting his ass kicked. No, and so, yeah, different, different emotional context. And, and I think the other thing in terms of gaming where this movie really works for me is they create like a whole world that is contained and you can you could imagine this as a map that a gm has in front of them like all those locations they're all highly gameable locations and and the people are all they'd be very easy npcs to manage in a campaign um so you know you just there's there's you you could you you could watch this movie and just take everything that you saw in the film put it onto a, a, a a hex map just a single hex map of a region and you'd have a weekend of gaming from that at least, I think. You know, without, oh, yeah. without making anything that you didn't see. Like, you might have to expand on some of the stuff. But, like, there was enough, there were enough locations that you could probably get a weekend of gaming out of it. Um, get an easy, easy weekend, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, like, and there was a lot of implied locations, too, that you could develop just a little bit and have, like, the underpinnings of a really good campaign. And like, actually, I had a flashbacks a lot to uh, to Legends of the Wulin, which was really big into that, and Weapons of the Gods did that too, where it was like, okay, so the people and the clans are going to be really important to how your game is structured. Um, really, the only thing I felt that those games lacked was like linking it to a map in a more structured way, mm-hmm. because they were really big on like, hey, look, chart the relationships and and make certain that there are rivalries and things like that in your martial world. I. Uh, this this movie does a great job of showing you, hey, look, all the people, all the heads of these Kung Fu clans have relationships with each other, and they have a history with each other. And so, like, that's informing what's what you're seeing here and all the drama. That was great. No, Especially that's... because a lot of it was done in callback. Like, hey, remember 20 years ago when this happened? And they just give you a little clip like, we didn't know that, like, as an audience, but, but they did. Having, I find having a big event in the past of the campaign, like 20 or 10 years ago, really adds to that. Like having One thing that really works is having the players be sort of the new generation living in the shadow of this big event. So they might yeah. not have all the pieces. And Your so, Battle of Kansha, if you will. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's just a... <laughs> By the very... way, I love that. Oh, it was Kansha. It's really cool. Because every time they said it, I was like, yeah! <laughs> well, and the, and the thing I, I, I liked about it was... You know, you sort of—they—they were when when you first see the backstory, it's not totally clear like who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. That emerges over the course of the movie, so you know it emerges pretty quickly. I also liked the uh, the commentary from the narration. The 
the this is this is a movie that's really made i think for wuxia fans it's it's you know if, if you've if you've seen a lot of wuxia movies or read a lot of wuxia books there's a narration in the film that will occasionally it's not overbearing but it'll occasionally comment on you know oh well if this character had read more wuxia novels he wouldn't have fallen for this obvious trick yeah, they obviously say that at one point in the movie, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things they say. Yeah, clearly, he, has, the, he hasn't read many Wuxia novels. Yeah, a character gets stabbed <laughs> in the back uh, by somebody who he probably should have been more alert to. And and it says, well, clearly he didn't read a lot of Wuxia. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, but it's not it's not constant. It's just enough to... Yeah, they, the, the narrator, I want to point... Look, that, that was said by the narrator. There's a narrator in this movie, and it's great because you're right they don't overuse it it's just a fine little spice mm. and they add it anytime they need that little that little thing to kick a scene right over the over the top yeah. love it and and they'll and they'll and they'll even like comment directly to the characters sometimes like oh you thought you were gonna have an easy life after this didn't you you know it's it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a really charming movie i i think that uh it, it, I don't know if this is a movie that I recommend for people who haven't seen Wuxi yet. I might recommend a more sedate yeah, Wuxi movie be your first. Intro. You um, might get the wrong impression if this was your first, yeah, uh, first heading into it. Yeah, because you might but see if, it. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Like if you've ever seen, like, if you ever seen any other ones, this almost plays like a parody. Yeah, like it's it's right it's riding that line, which again, impressive balancing act. So. And, and there are a few parodies out there. There's um there's also one in the '90s uh, that's based on uh, Condor Heroes. It's called Eagle Shooting Heroes, and it's it's a it's a real parody of, of of those kind of stories. This one it sort of has one foot in the parody world and one foot. It's like it's like a sincere parody, if that makes sense. It's, it, it has just enough self awareness that you chuckle, but it's it's it it still has uh, a lot of stuff to chew on. And you know what this is? This is like the whooshy equivalent of the 1960s Adam West Batman. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, we're going to legit make Batman, but also we understand that's kind of a stupid premise, so we're going to roll with that. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a winking to the audience on occasion with it. There's that, there, there is definitely that going on, but it, but it feels like it's done out of love, not because they're, they're, they're trying to tear apart the genre. Um, and, and another yeah, thing is it has... Like virtually every wuxia trope you can think, like it just crank, like even to the point that it seemed like I'm not familiar with the original graphic novel it's based on, so I don't know. And I've heard different things, but it looks to me like it's there's a lot in here that feels like different uh, Lewis Cha stories. And so you have like uh, you know Little Dragon Girl as a character. And interestingly enough, I think the the woman who plays Little Dragon Girl plays the actual Little Dragon Girl in. Uh, little Dragon Maiden movie. Um, what do you make of that? <laughs> I don't know because they're totally. They're, it's not like they're. It's a different. I mean, that's like in that one, she's actually playing Zhao Longnu. But in this one, um, I don't know if it was just the the fact that it was the uh, this, the 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 um, the 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 same actress, and so they they. Oops, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Stutter alert. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if it was that it was the, uh, if they were just, you know, sometimes if, if they're marketing something to a foreign audience, they'll just use whatever name is familiar. So maybe, maybe that wasn't actually meant to be the name of the character, but in all of the, oh, yeah, maybe. in all of the movie databases and everything, it's little dragon maiden or little dragon girl. So, hmm. but 
but yeah so i don't know i i i i think there's a lot that you can get from gaming from this one and uh and I, I think we'll, you know, but, you know, alarm went off. So I think we'll, we'll move into the next segment at this point. All right. So the next uh, segment is problems in design. And I think we wanted to talk, uh, we wanted to continue some of the discussion about genre blending, but also talk about handling high-powered PCs and Wuxia and Mythic campaigns. And obviously, this is going to be something that I think you are dealing with a lot because of the stuff you're working on. I because I deal with it too, but mainly it's because of the mythic elements that I've incorporated. Not is not quite as much from the wuxia, though. I still have, I, there still is that because, you know, in wuxia you will have these characters that are, uh, you know, that get their hands on a really good manual or technique, uh, or, you know, it, again, it dep- it's very system dependent, obviously. But in the game oh. that I run, they'll get their hands on a technique and it'll become like a, a, a you know, instant win anytime they use it, you know. That is, and so that's something that you have to, uh, you know, you have to uh, sort of know how to manage. And I'm curious where you've sort of seen this problem. Oh, yeah, and that's that's even in Buddha's Palm, where, like, there there's a guy, he's got the best technique, and that, that spurs the, all the action in the movie. So it's really important, in, in, especially in Wuxia, to have the secret manual, the reclusive master, the forbidden technique. Like, yeah. you, you ha- almost have to have it. Because that's the whole reason people start fighting and going and doing. Yeah. But then the question becomes, like, well, okay, when someone gets it, then what happens? Because now you've got someone who's well above the power curve. Daddy, Daddy, yeah. Daddy, 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 Rolling, buddy. I'm kind of in the middle of recording this thing. That is super awesome. Go ahead and play your game, all right? Ah, the fun of four. That's a good. That's a good age. I remember being four and watching the Transformers movie. Yeah, and we should we should mention that Joel is on 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 dad duty today. So that is the uh, yep on the dad shift. So um, my my apologies for child interruption. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good summation of the problem, right? Like you have you almost have to have the super powerful technique there, but when someone gets it, suddenly you've got to deal with that in the game, an ongoing yeah. thing. So that is the simple version of the problem. And I think I think in those instances too, it's also if it's something you're introducing, you know, only introduce things that you're willing to deal with consequences for. Obviously sometimes there'll yes. be things that have unforeseen consequences. But if you're putting it in your setting, I mean you're putting it in your you know, it's it's on you if you if it's your own game. Um okay. And, so, and, and unforeseen, I want to point this out, unforeseen consequences, like if you introduce something that's innocuous to the game and it turns out to have a huge effect, you can talk to players about that, like, hey, guys, I didn't mean for this to be yeah. that. I don't want the game to be about this. And so you've got that. But if you intentionally put in the Buddha's palm or, like, the all-destroying lotus kick or whatever you put into your game, from premise, that's there to break the game. Yeah. That's what we're talking about with the high-powered stuff, where, like, no, we knew what we were doing, and now we deal with the consequences of it of coming to fruition in the game. And I think there, you know, the, so there, there, there are a number of ways to handle that, because one, one solution that I've found is, the, is something I call the evolving kung fu landscape, where, where the players uh, might acquire a really, like, like okay, there was a technique in, in, the, in the game I had that had unforeseen consequences, Blade of the Dancing Fox. It became, it, 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 everybody started taking it after a while because it was so good. And I, 
in my initial thought was, oh, I made a mistake. I need to get rid of that technique. I need to talk to the players about it. But then I realized, oh no, a, a really good like a really good tool can exist in a setting. And what will tend to happen is somebody will produce a counter to that tool. Do you know what I mean the 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 it's sort of like the flying guillotine situation, um, and so you know like you know c coming up with a with a with an answer to the super powerful ability uh, is is sometimes a way to 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 manage the problem. Oh yeah, and again, that's that's well supported in the fiction in Wuxia, uh, in and like. You, you have the, oh, he's got the super powerful technique, but the other thing you can start a story with even is, we have developed the counter technique, and this is yeah. the guy that has that, or yeah. how, how do we develop the counter technique? Completely reasonable. And, like, you're, you're right, it, it makes it so that instead of it being a sort of zero-sum game, it's an evolving paradigm. And that, when it's dynamic like that, you don't really have to worry about, like, because you're not necessarily hitting a higher plateau of, like, overall power where you're completely breaking through the genre expectations, you're just making something that's better numerically. And that's not too hard to say, okay, well, there's a counter for it, or there's several counters for it, and then it just becomes part of the new paradigm of, of like, people that are good at martial arts are at least this good and master at least these techniques. That's fine. That's wonderful. And you even see that in real martial arts. Like, when you, like when you if you watch the UFC or traditional martial arts, you'll see it in competitions. Things will start people will discover that something works and they'll use it. And then the response to that begins to take hold. And, and, and then it becomes an obsolete, you know, once, once the, you know, like it, it can, it can become obsolete after a while as a tactic, or it could become something that you don't, you know, isn't ubiquitously used to win every time. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's plausible. It makes sense. It gives you, you know, again, it, this only can work if you have, if the game you're using, you know, allows you to have responses like that in it. You know, it, it really is very system dependent. But, but I've. This is true. But, but uh, I've, that's very I, oh, true. <laughs> I'm sorry. What were you going to say? I just say that's very true. I was agreeing with you. Um, but, but I've even gone so far as to have like specific counters that are specific to techniques. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is only for this one technique. Um, that's, that's not even out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Like, again, that's in the fiction. And like, this. Maybe not be quite as satisfying as the more tactically robust way of saying that you no know, everything just evolves. It's a lot less work, though. Dear Lord. That's true. And and the the other the other solution that can work is um is is to to place requirements on whatever the like if you have an, if if you have a character that gets really powerful, maybe have that power have some responsibility attached to it or whatever the whatever the source of that power is maybe there's a consequence to the power yeah um well, don't, don't people get possessed by demons in your game if they get superpowers well no they get well, so what what can happen is if they overextend themselves they can get oh. possessed by spirits but it's uh it's not necessarily connected to their power level um with with the with 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 getting more powerful i guess most of the responses that I tend to have tend to be insetting responses. So things like counter techniques, things like, you know, if you're the most powerful guy in the world, people will start coming after you wanting to sort of prove that they're better than you. That kind of thing is sort of how I would handle it. Um, oh, yeah. That's, you know. that's a great way of handling it. When, when you don't want to, like, crack into the actual redesigning of techniques and designing a new tactical landscape, you can just straight up make their life hell. 
okay, you're the most powerful now. That's not necessarily what you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and, th and there's a reason why people will sometimes hide their level of ability in, in these kind of settings, precisely for that reason. You know, if you, you know, and not just that, but if you have the ultimate technique that can beat everybody, people are going to want that technique. They're going to, you know, oh, yeah. you know, so, you know, they'll, they'll come after you to try to get you to reveal it or to steal your manual. So, again, I don't think you have to, you don't have to make it miserable for the player, but if you make it believably complicated, the the players who don't have that ability might be somewhat thankful that they don't. Um, you know, so... It, I, I would like to point out, it is completely fair if you are warning the player beforehand, like the player, not the character, just like, hey, look, you're about to master the 10,000 dragon fist. This is not going to go super well for you. Like, you're going to have this power, yeah, but, like, legit no one else has this, you're going to throw the power curve, and, like, every, you're going to be on everyone's list. So just so you know, before you... Your character knows this. In character, you understand that this is going to happen. So I want you to know as a player. And then after that, like, you almost got free reign as a GM to be like, okay, well, I mean, yeah, you've got an assassin attacking you. You don't know why, but, I mean, like, I'm going to tell you, out of character, Yo. you probably strongly suspect it's because you mastered the 10,000 Dragon Fist. And and if the and if and if it's a GM who doesn't like going out a character like that or like speaking directly to the player, they can just transfer that information to the backstory of the manual or something. They can still convey oh, yeah. it to them, so that like, that well, the last guy who had this was slaughtered by the, you know what I mean? Like there can be, uh, or like the ten thousand typhoon ninja destroyed this guy. So you know, if you don't want to mess with them, don't master the stupid <laughs> scroll. But uh, but yeah, I think I, I mean again, so so much of the genre revolves around you know, battles over scrolls and techniques. So, and in, and in all of these series and, and books and, and movies, you know, often the guy that's standing at the pinnacle of it will, you know, it, it comes with complications. It comes with serious complications. It's not necessarily a picnic. And so I, I don't really have a problem allowing a character to rise. I had, I had a character who became the leader of the Wulin at one point in my setting. And... He was, I think, burdened by you know the responsibilities, the people that were coming after, and it and it wasn't like I was assailing him constantly, but it was, it, but it was, uh, it's enough that I think that that kind of position in a setting where, you, where things are reactive, uh, it's ba it balances out on its own. Um, oh yeah, and if you if you and you have clearly done this, if you seek a balance. That naturally makes makes the uh, the choices that players have reinforce choices that characters make in that genre. You have one hundred percent succeeded in in what you're trying to do. You know, okay, this is a lot of responsibility. I should vanish from the martial world and become a reclusive hermit. Oh my god, yes, do that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and now, but but here's a question: like, we're t we're kind of talking more about like wuxia scale now, but what about when you get through that like to the god level scale? That's okay, so really that's what I'm yeah. game breaking. Okay, so Tianchang, one one of the things I set out to do with it, uh, and this this is a lifelong goal of mine. If I can pull it off, I'll be very happy with myself, and I'm actually pretty proud of it so far. Was to make sure we could do stuff that went like well past. The, the point of reasonable power scales. Mm -hmm. I'm talking like the, the, the more stupidly powerful limits of Dragon Ball Z, the stuff you saw in the video game Ashura's Wrath, like the stuff that's so past even like what you could conceive of using as a power gamer for power scale, that almost like pun pun level of nightmare levels of power 
we're like, okay, we want to get there. We want that to be within the scope of a well-run campaign. And uh, so that's that's a big chunk of cake to slice off as a designer and try to eat your way through. And um, and yeah, like when you're when you're talking about the stuff in the martial world and tactical response, you can use that same stuff even with the really crazy power level. And I know that because it happened in Dragon Ball Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dragon Ball Z has been my recurring template for, hey, look, you can do the same stuff. You can do the martial world. You can do that same evolving tactical response. Everything. You can do that. And you can do it at a ridiculous scale. Because they did do it decades ago. They're still doing it with Dragon Ball Super. Where, like, they'll just introduce some new, more powerful guy. And then all of a sudden, like, like we said, the paradigm evolves a little bit. Okay, now the Saiyans are coming. Oh, man, those Saiyans are powerful. But, oh, man, the Ginyu Force. And, oh, no, no, now it's Frieza. Now Cell is showing up. You know, it's just, you just get that even, you just, oh, uh, you, you can make more numbers on top of numbers. Let's keep doing that. Yeah. So, you, you, um, oh, oh boy. It's, this is one of those things It's almost hard to even talk about. Well, because, what's, your, like, what's your solution? What's your solution? Is, is there a solution? Or is it, uh, is it mechanical? Is it setting-driven? Uh, uh, pretty much all three. All the stuff you outlined, which was cost to power, which helps balance it from the uh, from the premise. Uh, that framework has to be really important. So, like, we have uh, you use prana, which is our equivalent of chi, your magic go go juice. So, like, getting that cost scale correct uh, required a lot of playtesting and a lot of math. But once you do that, you've got a good frame for making the powers have a balance, or in this case, a very carefully crafted imbalance. Uh, so that you have reasonable trade-offs between powers. So that makes something that's kind of tactically interesting. You did that in your game. Wandering Heroes is a whole bunch of powers, and they all inherently have a trade-off in them. They're not 100% balanced. That's by design. They're imbalanced enough that you can make a tactically rich landscape. Mm -hmm. Same thing. So that's the first bedrock thing. If you can get that right, the rest isn't too bad. Then... um, I have social consequences in the form of you can only learn these techniques if you go and, and wrap yourself in the uh, in the the drama and the the dangers and the the enemies etc and the obligations of a martial sect. You have to acquire a lore, and that requires you to kind of take on the responsibility of whoever taught you because you're their you're their disciple now. And there's social consequences of that, so that goes forward into the game. Like, okay, I've got this powerful technique, but now I've got a whole bunch more enemies that I have to deal with. Or whatever. You know, I've got expectations of me. Or alternatively, you could steal it, and then you've got them as enemies. <laughs> so it's impossible to acquire a technique without acquiring baggage. So that's what yeah. you've got an ongoing thing. And then you have the evolving tactical landscape where, I mean, like, it's the thing about a game, especially with a game, if the players have it, the go to, I don't need to think about this solution of a GM is give that exact same power to a bad guy. Suddenly it's balanced. Suddenly they've got a rival. Suddenly you've got an, an inherently evolved tactical landscape by just straight up making a bad guy with the same powers as a good guy. If you have a big enough game, and in our game the power levels are tiered quite a bit, you can just say, okay, I'm just going to reach from this higher tier. I'm going to take a bunch of people from the same tier. So everything we talked about, evolving tactical landscape, uh, basic cost and balance of powers and social stuff, all still works. You just gotta understand that you're dealing with a much bigger, more explosive scale. Okay, yeah, because what one one thing what I've sort of done too is I've had the uh, the sort of social limitations operate on the 
the martial hero level in the setting. Mm -hmm. But then when you get up to the, like the immortal levels and stuff like that, those kinds of limitations become more embedded in the cosmology. Like you, you need yeah. to be merciful to get this ability, like this pathway of abilities to work. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and so, oh, you, I like yeah, that. I find that can be helpful. It can, it can work with certain, even like regular, they're, they're like uh, in Return of Condor Heroes, there's a, there's a technique that the master of Passionless Valley uses. And it's a, it's a really effective technique. And it makes him really difficult to kill. But in order to use this style of kung fu, you can never eat meat. They, they, you, like if you touch meat, your kung fu that that part of your kung fu just evaporates. You can't use it anymore. Um, oh. So, uh, so 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 one of the ways that they deal with them is is somebody uh, slips a drop of blood into his tea uh, right before he's going to fight, and then you know he loses his big power. Um, so. You know, have putting things like that in the game too that players actually have to worry about. If there's a technique that's really, really good, but you do this one thing, it totally messes it up. You know that that can be harrowing enough that only the most, uh, the, the the most ambitious and gam like gambling minded players will will go for it. You know. Yeah, you know, actually, there there was a lot of. Uh... A lot of talk about that in Legends of the Wulin, too, because they had, like, uh, cultivation restrictions. They went a lot into the Taoist sexual mm -hmm. alchemy and stuff like that, which it's a little bit... Something I didn't wasn't really super interested in developing in this game, but it did get called out as something that was, well, like, that is actually a part of the genre. The only problem I actually had with it as a designer for not putting into the game wasn't the kind of the squick factor. Mm -hmm. It was actually just that, like, the in Legends, like, they didn't really... There was no actual penalty. You you had to basically want to make that something that penalized your character, and yeah. you would add that onto your sheet. But it wasn't part of the actual underpinning of how the mechanics worked. Okay. So that was my issue with it. I was like, well, I have to do all this work. I don't want to. <laughs> that, that, nah. that can be a big deterrent sometimes. Um, sometimes it's just like... It, you got to think of the work versus reward. Like, how many people are clamoring for that? Probably yeah. not many. You know, and there's there's plenty of other places to go with it that I think are a little more interesting and, and well, more of a broad appeal. It doesn't so. necessarily have to be like in that territory too. You can get into stuff that just sort of deals with the difference of yin and yang, and oh, and yeah. how that would you know like like uh, you know the, like I have some techniques that like only women can use or only guys can use and things like that. And, you know, like or if a if a woman or a guy want to use it, they have to do something specific in order to gain access to that ability. Man, you know, I admire that, but that's one of those bridges, those cultural bridges that's really hard to cross in today's political landscape. Mm, because, be like, it's a huge thing about duality and, like, gendering mm. in Chinese mythology that's so huge. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you almost can't talk about it in those terms in the Western world anymore. Well, like, it's, it's such a hot-button issue. I, I don't know, though, because I feel like in even in even in a lot of these, the, the source material, there is still this spectrum that you could kind of come at it from any number of angles. You can sort of take the duality approach, but there's also, like the movie we saw, Swordsman 2, uh, a couple of weeks ago. That character is basically like a trans woman character. And this is a film yeah. that was made in the 90s in Yeah, in it, doesn't, it doesn't make any bones about it. It's like, and that, the fact that she is trans is such an important part of her character, too. She has yeah. a romance that's like really well developed, like a... a a heterosexual romance with the the straight male lead, and like he is straight up in love with her. Like, and there's a tragic element to it. Yeah, 
So I, I think you maybe got a point there. Maybe I'm just not being complete enough in my view here. Well, I think I think it's the kind of territory. I mean, every everybody's got to sort of approach this in a way that they that they feel that they can. But like I, my view on it is that the you know there's plenty in the source material that uh, it can be used so many different ways that I you know I and also you kind of have to decide how much you know like I assume when I make stuff I assume that the audience that's that's reading it is is aware that I'm drawing on source material that has these ideas and that you know and 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 if if and one thing that a lot so so just as an example to use something a little bit less charged but still potentially mm-hmm. uh something controversial that comes up in games uh mindset in some in a society based on song dynasty china and that is kind of a you know that there is uh, uh a difference between being a man and a woman in that kind of setting but what i say in the book is i say look that's what it's based on that's kind of how i present it but martial heroes they can kind of do what they want anyway so there's that if you don't really want to care about it and it's ultimately up to you like i don't really care what anybody does at their table you know what i mean like but there mm-hmm. but but i point out all of the genre conventions that exist to get around that problem so you know there's the you know the thing yeah. that uh the female characters that dress up I'm, I'm sorry that's probably the best way to do it when you're having to deal with the actual like reality of misogyny existing in the historical past like if you have a historical game that's that's a part of it i mean, I mean yeah, like it's there and 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 it's, again i don't really my view on it is every table is going to approach that stuff differently so i don't really care if, if people want to mix things they can if they want to include them they can but uh but i think i think that it's it's a it, it's I, I don't know as a, as a reader i find it insulting when when they hide things from me that i'm gonna that i'm gonna discover on my own when i go to the source material so i'd rather that it i'd rather yeah, that it be there really encounter that very often what what i more commonly encounter nowadays is games that are trying to make that that conversation you would have as an adult with your friends at a table mm-hmm. they're trying to make that part of the element of the game itself like in exalted third edition and I'm, not, I'm still not really sure how to feel about this they have a rule called the red rule which is basically don't put anything that is going to make your characters uncomfortable in like a romantic or sexual sense in the game without talking to your players about it and it's not just like something that's in the rule book about hey you should talk about this like it yeah. was in the older editions. It's a rule, like it's okay. a it's a thing you can like address as a player. And like, I don't know, that's a comfortable place to put that conversation. This is probably a conversation we should have in the future, by the way. Uh, but but yeah, like just to kind of put a pin in this so you're thinking yeah. about it. Like, what is? It's it's certainly a strange and novel way to approach it. It's gotten a lot of praise, mm-hmm. I've noted. So maybe I'm a dinosaur in this regard. Uh, but it's it's something to think about and kind of chew on. I mean, I may have to see if there's a open source version of this I can let you read, because I I, I kickstarted that one. Like I I, okay. I backed that. So I don't uh, know so. that rule, so it's a little hard for me to comment on. But I mean, I'm I'm older than you, and so I'm probably even more <laughs> of a dinosaur. Um, you know, but. Uh, I don't know. Like I guess my feeling on that that seems like a reasonable thing for people to discuss at their table. I don't know that I need the rules to tell me that I need to do that, though. That's, yeah, it might be aimed at a different audience yeah. than us, which is I, something different. I feel like I kind of already know that if it's going to be like I don't mind them reminding me, like, "Hey, this could get spicy. Maybe you should, maybe you should talk to each other." Uh, I, I don't know that I want, but what I don't really want is I don't want the designers of the game to decide for me how I'm going to handle mature content. Yeah, I, that's I don't where want I to kinda, try and... Like, 
it, it, to that's me, that's a little off. you. And what's what's that all about? You know? Yeah. That again. I I, I mean, I'm not I'm I'm not aware of the rule that you're talking about. So I want to be very careful here and sort of yeah, giving and my response. That's the thing. It, even it's been a while since I read it because I, and you've seen my rants on Exalted Third Edition. Like I, I've kind of, kind of softened on it, mm-hmm. but my initial blush with it was like I, I'm so mad that I paid money for this. Okay, I was so furious, and so I read that rule, and it was, it, well, it was while I was reading the whole document, and like for me, reading Exalted Third Edition was just me like looking at it, reading like a paragraph okay. two, and just like well clucking my tongue like oh no you Here, didn't. here's what i would say i whenever i do read something i do try to be as charitable as i can so <laughs> i would look at it through the lens of, of of not being angry at them if there were mechanics that you didn't like you know trying to sort of shake that out of your head and, and look at but, but it's such a weird beat i like i don't and i don't want to derail this to talk about ex3 it's a it's a fascinating topic to breach into for the record, we might we, we might do an episode where I'm just like, well, okay, here's people my thing do with... use it for wuxia, so I think it's a reasonable it, thing to that's discuss. Um, and I don't, and like, when, especially when you're talking about high powered wuxia, exalted sort of your go to. Like, I wouldn't be a game designer without exalted, so like, I owe it a lot, but at the same time, I don't necessarily owe exalted third edition anything because I, I already have a library of second edition stuff and first ed stuff. When I got third, I was like, "Well, I guess this is just the tombstone for the rest of my collection." Okay. Because I didn't, I didn't back the Dragon Blooded one. This I, new one they got out. I think I have the first edition book. I don't, I, I, I don't follow Exalted all that much, but I, I mean, I'm aware of it. Obviously, it's, it's a game. It's hard not to be like yeah, that. That game is big. And uh, and I am aware that there is sharp division from edition to edition. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess when, you know. Again, not really talking about that rule specifically because it's not one that I've read yet, and so I don't really know the content of it. But generally speaking, I don't mind if the book sort of draws something to my attention, says, "Hey, this thing might become an issue in your game. You might want to think about it." Uh, oh yeah, but, but what, like, what, what, lessons what, did that too, where yeah. it would like it would, it would talk in the section about sexual alchemy. It was like, "Hey, look, you don't have to put this in there. This is something you can consider if you want to." But and like it, it did. It treated you like an adult. Yeah. You know, it said. And a, he, here's a thing, see your table, which is really all I wanted to say. Yeah, because yeah, I, I, that's kind of how I want. I, I want to be. I I I know myself. I know the people that I'm playing with better than the person writing the book, and so I just don't know that a one size fits all approach is is workable in these. And also, I think there's a. I could be wrong, but I feel like there's a really sharp East Coast West Coast divide and maybe you living where you live that might be a meaningless distinction that i'm making <laughs> yeah but, uh, i think you're i mean like i you know it's still my native culture i mean i'm not a coastal guy my my mother was from california but like she grew up in ohio i'm, I'm in missouri okay. so like yeah there's some cultural drift and like a lot of that like i'll tell you from the the like bible belt perspective on you coastal people is that you're all freaks oh oh i know i know i, I have relatives from missouri Both so coasts I... have their own freak flag they fly uh, well and sometimes we are freaks but but uh but i think that um the the uh the thing that i don't know so over here on the east coast and again it's not ubiquitous because obviously they're they're and i i hate to re- keep reusing that word but you know whatever um, uh, ubiquity is uh, a good term for this um but the you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of different regions here, and there are places that are more like what you would find in the West for sure. But among the people that I play with, whenever I've tr- like I've like there there was something floating around called the X card for a while, and other types. Oh of yeah, I remember that. And I what? and I, I I floated the idea with them just because I'm like, well, I'm like an old man. Let me see if I'm out of touch. But when I mentioned it to people, all I got was laughter. 
You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, and it's yeah, not it's that... Like, exact same thing happened to me. Yeah. I, I, was, I read that article on RPG and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm really out of touch here. And I talked to my, my wife, and, like, cause I game with women a lot. And I yeah. was like, am I making you guys uncomfortable? And it was just laughter. It was like, you're an idiot. Elves, dragons, go. Yeah, and and I think I think what I learned is, like, really what most people want is they want you, at least in my experience, they want you to not have to even get to the point of using something like that. Like, like, yeah. it, like it doesn't mean that you have carte blanche to do whatever you want, but you should be aware of what the other players are uh when, when people will let you, people will let you know not always directly but you'll kind of you should be able to sense when there's discomfort in the room and yeah ultimately that's where it came with with me too where I was like I, I realized at a certain point that like hey look I don't have this problem when I'm talking to people or hanging out with people or anything I don't and I don't have that problem in my games probably because I just don't have that problem in general yeah. as, a, as a person who understands how social things work I know when I've crossed a line a game doesn't have to teach me that i'm an adult i know that yeah, yeah. And, and, if and, and something that i'll do is I'll, I'll frequently talk to my players like i'll ask them like okay is all this stuff okay you know what i mean you just kind of you know you, you can you can you can ask for information again maybe it's different if you're playing a lot at, at hobby stores and things like very that. different if you're meeting people and gaming with them yeah and, like it's significant difference because i've tried that i've tried just meeting and gaming with people and I find that those those social boundaries get smashed into a lot more often unintentionally in that kind of scenario. So it's not like it's not like there's no thought behind the X card. Like I don't want to just sit here and just mock it mm. because remember it was developed to serve a need. Yeah. And like there's some validity to that. So no, I, like I, I could sort of see it having a function at like a t that kind of situation. Like I go into you're playing at a game store and it's all people that you never met or whatever. Because um, I'll be honest, I don't play at game stores anymore. Because the last time I went to one, some kid punched another kid in the face, and Jesus and there was yeah, it was, it was it was, and I was like, you know, what's going on? Like this is not what I'm, you know, looking for when I game. So I I don't go to game stores to game. I do it with friends, and that's what? worked for me. That's, that's but wait a minute, back up. I want to know the story about the kid punching the kid in the face. I like don't, I don't remember exactly what was going on because they were so spastic. And, and there was, like, this constant back and forth. Like, it was this kind of situation where it was at a game store, and there were people... There was a wide spectrum of ages represented, number one. So I think you probably had people that were, like, 15 to 40 playing together. And that's a really... That's... I mean, that's... Like, I'm... I, I don't have 15-year-old energy level. Do you know what I mean? And, and attention nah. span. So there were a lot of there were, there were two guys that kept kind of getting up going and doing things and getting in each other's faces for a variety of reasons and i think one of them insulted the other one at a certain point and i don't know that it just it just escalated and the next thing i knew is they were fighting in the hobby store and somebody got punched in the course of the fight and then the kid started crying and screaming and he ran out so it was it was a really i mean again this was probably a freak situation that I just sort of stumbled into my because it was my first time going back to a hobby store after a while, and you know just being like, "Hey, I'm going to try the local gaming scene type situation," and it just did not go well. I was like, "I'm, I don't need this." Uh, Man, you know, and I, holy and, lord! And and the thing is, like, I you know at that time fighting was one of my hobbies. I, I liked martial arts, but I don't want any of that at the table. I don't I don't want any kind of Personal There's conflict. Going or, to a martial arts dojo and yeah. fighting in a disciplined way and throwing a punch over some kid over an elf game. Though. Yeah. That is a golf man. I found, so I don't know. I think um, 
so so again, all I'm trying to sort of say with that is that I can see how stuff like the, those kind of tools might be handy in a, in that kind of situation, maybe. But I don't I don't game at stores, so I don't know. And I don't think an X card would I don't think it would have solved this problem. Um, My God, yeah. Um, I, I don't. In a situation like that, and I think, and this is my perspective on it as, as an old, out-of-touch white guy, like, if you... Eh, there, there comes a point where the problem is no longer with the game, it is with the people. And, like, the X cards and the punching comes into it, like, that feels like that's not really in the scope of a game. You can't make a rule yeah, I... or a construct, a feather passing, as it will, that will fix that. You just need to be better people. Yeah, I'm like, I, mean, I can't fix that for you, buddy. The, the player's handbook is not designed to bludgeon people with, but it can be used for that. And there's not much that they can do to yeah. stop you from, you know, if, if you if you're intent on if you're intent on using, you know, something that for a purpose it isn't designed for. Uh, so. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's an extreme example, I know. But so this conversation went to an interesting place. <laughs> well, no, but I think I think it's it's something that uh, we kind of got here because what we were talking about was, uh, I, I think what we were originally discussing was the whole issue that can come up with. I think you were talking about Taoist uh, uh, six magic, basically, and I was talking about like yin yang, uh, you know, energy having meaning in the setting, and there are challenges to that and we, and what we were trying to get at was ultimately i think we both sort of agree uh you know that you kind of you don't you don't want to you don't necessarily want to infantilize the audience with um uh what when you do bring that material to the to the to the design table um but yeah, i don't you know don't, you don't want to bring something like that to the the game and then immediately assume your audience is too immature to deal with it you know that that seems like a contradiction to me. Okay. So if okay. you're only talking about sex magic, like assume that you are talking to an adult audience. Mm-hmm. Just assume that. I mean, it's it's already a a game that requires a pretty sophisticated intellect to wrap your mind around. So like, and you don't have to be necessarily an adult, but I think that if you're going to be running a role playing game, if you don't at the very core of that understand the social contract of just not being a complete wing nut as a human being, nothing I can write in a rule book is going to fix that problem. Well, I I think too the um, the the thing that you know you you do, you do, you have to know your table like uh, yeah. you know like, and and you have to know your game and so like not every game needs that sort of thing. I just feel like if you're drawing on genre material and you're trying to be authentic, like not authentic, authentic is the wrong word, but if you're trying to not authentic is is the correct nomenclature for that because what you want to do is be genuine to the genre. You want to accurately and honestly represent it. And like I mean, and actually, I I kind of made fun of the authors of Legends of the Wuling when that came into a forum. And someone was talking about sex magic and how like was that going to be in the game? I was like, nah, that's quick. I don't want to move around from that. And someone called me out on it, and I'm kind of glad they did uh, because it got me thinking about it in a more sophisticated way. It was like, okay, well, you know, maybe this was more important to people than I thought it was, and maybe just being honest to the genre was something important to the the authors of this game, and I was selling them short, and I I really feel like I was, because when I went and reread that section after after getting my my keister roasted uh, on the forums about that, I was like, you know what, actually, this is pretty well written. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm publicly proven wrong about that one. Well, I mean... 
and it's one of those things too if you if you're dealing with a genre that's not an american genre or not like you know something there's you know a genre in english-speaking countries you're going to encounter things that are uh they're not they're not you know there's gonna like if you watch a lot of wuxia you're going to see things that might upset some of our sensibilities and then so you have to decide as as a designer you know how much of that you're going to incorporate and my i guess my inclination is to incorporate it because it's there and i feel like if i don't then i'm kind then i might be misleading people do you know what i mean yeah like underrepresenting something that's actually an important element yeah you know i actually i've got a before i ever encountered role-playing games i was a big martial arts fan Mm -hmm. and like i got a book from i think 1979 which was Kung Fu, and it was like myth and, and reality. And it was written by two authors. One was American and one was Chinese. And like it had a lot of that stuff in there. It was like, hey, look, there's here's the mystical underpinnings of this stuff. Of course, this is just mythology, but here it is. And so I was conversant with Taoist sexual alchemy long before Legends of the Wulin came along. And like I read that as a kid, as like a 15, 16-year-old kid, and I was just like, I know about sex. It wasn't that huge of a deal to me. But people have a broad range of encountering these these topics, and, you know. And also with that stuff, there are ways to handle it if you don't want to get, you know, if you want to be like PG, there are ways to handle it. I, I, again, we're gonna we'll hopefully get to that movie Holy Flame of the Martial World because they kind of get into that territory. Yeah, the, the, you, you'll see what I mean when we get there, where they they really make it uh, much more palatable. Um, and and so you know, I, I think that's. Uh, Again, it's it's just one of these things where, you know, you're drawing on something from another country, and there's going to be stuff in there that's going to be dealt with differently. And you may have to put cultural appropriation as one of the things that we talk about because <laughs> we are both white dudes that are super into like Chinese and Indian, et cetera, culture stuff. I don't know. I might be too old to talk about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's sort I'm, of how I feel about it too, because I'm like. I don't even understand how you'd put like I, it's almost pernicious in my estimation to put a value on culture like a monetary value. I'm like that's not really how culture well, works, guys. So I don't want to get I don't want to get too side railed into all this stuff because we don't normally cover these things. Uh, but, we're but, in but, territory. but we've gotten into it, so <laughs> I will at least explain my position on it. I feel that um, I feel that it's sort of barking up the wrong tree. The cultural appropriation concern. I understand why people have it. But I think that we already have something to deal with that issue, which is cultural sensitivity, which anybody that's dealing with stuff from another culture, you know, can can do without getting into the whole cultural appropriation argument. And my concern with the whole cultural appropriation thing is, number one, when I actually talk to people from China or from these other countries, they're really excited that people like their, their you know, an aspect of their culture and are trying to, you know, use it creatively or share it. And so I feel like it's a very first world concern, um, or or at least like a very academic concern. Um, it, you, may have a, you may have a point there. I don't um, move in academic circles, so like. But um, but but also I, I feel I, I do feel like you know you do want to be sensitive. I just don't think that I, I think if you if you stifle people's ability to borrow aesthetics from each other. Then you don't end up with those wonderful Cho Yuen movies from the seventies, because a lot of those are him borrowing from genres from America and people from you know other countries borrowing from from them. And you know, there's this, there's this. Yeah, I like to point out, like whenever I see cool, like when I see like Western stuff, 
in like a, a Japanese or like a, a Chinese movie, I don't feel like I've been robbed of my culture. I feel like, dude, look what they did. That's yeah. awesome. And I'm pretty sure that's a mutual feeling. No, and I understand that the cultural appropriation argument is premised on something where, you know, there's sort of this uneven exchange. But I just mm. feel like you don't, you will not have a, a richness of culture. And ultimately, it just kind of puts people in their lane and they have to stay there. And I don't, yeah, I don't like that idea. Of, where like, it's like, oh, you're Chinese. You can yeah. only do, uh, no, yeah. no, that's a line. I'm, that feels racist. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I feel like you start putting people in boxes. You know, that said, I mean, obviously there is a difference between a white guy and a guy who was raised in China handling the material. But I mean, yeah, that's but obvious. We have cultures that are different, that respecting those differences is important not like, but that doesn't mean that separating them to clean little boxes and never having the boxes touched. What the hell is that? Yeah. So, so like that's that's my feeling about it. It's just like, look, I I like things being messy. I, I want to go over and talk with the guy from China because that's fun and we're human well, and that you know that's sort of where I come from because again again I'm I'm a dinosaur so I'm probably coming at this from like you know a, you know uh, you know yeah. an old man angle but like m- my attitude is I like. You know, like like my wife's from another country. You know, I, I like interacting with people from other cultures, and I feel like a lot of the ideas that are sort of percolating around cultural appropriation actually make that much harder to do, because yeah. they make people, especially people that don't have the education to uh, to the or the exposure to. I mean, these are really academic ideas that that are that are not instantly understandable. You kind of have to delve into them a bit, and so. I think that if you if you don't have that grounding, it can make it can make even communicating with people from another another culture very difficult. So I don't know. I you know I I understand where the concern comes from, but I just feel like it's again I think it's barking up the wrong tree. I think I think that cultural sensitivity is the, is is a much more uh, you know reasonable expectation to have. And, yeah. and and again, I think we can have conversations about that. But I think not every single re- not every single negative reaction to something that's done with the culture is necessarily going to be the valid reaction, and so we have to we have to use some discernment and judgment around that stuff. And mm. you know, and hopefully, I mean, again, I think uh, I don't know. You, you're I just have the humility to understand that sometimes you're going to screw up as a human being, and that doesn't make you a racist. Like my thing, whenever I was, I was kind of making fun of uh, the the like Eric and all the guys who did Legends of the Wulin for the Taoist sexual alchemy. That was pretty thoughtless of me. I'm just going to cop to it. That was that was kind of a dick move. I really was sort of doing short shrift to like a, a really important aspect of the cultural mythology. You're right. I, I screwed up. I admit that. And you know what? I'm I repent. Let's move on. <laughs> I, I understand the value now. What? Like, that doesn't have to haunt you for the rest of your life. You can be wrong. That's not a big deal. Being wrong is part of eventually being right. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that with, with all of these things, you, you, you I don't know, you, again, I, I just go back to, you know, you, 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 can, you can do it in a sensitive way. It's not like you have to, uh, everybody has to stay in their lane. But I think, uh, I think it, you know, being... Uh, being sensitive to something like not you know not being uh, uh, you know blatantly offensive or something that that that's a reasonable expectation. I just feel like the the cultural appropriation argument is very amorphous and 
uh, ever changing, and it's I feel like the rules keep shifting around it, and I don't know what the ultimate end game with it is, and it's just it's an idea that I'm just in, I'm inherently suspicious of when I encounter it. Um, yeah. And so, you know, again, I uh, you know, like I said, I I, I want to live in a world where people can 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 play with different aesthetics from different places and it's not going to be an issue uh you know i don't know maybe 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 that's not the world that we're in anymore though so like i said i'm a dinosaur i don't know um dark let's let's not end it on that note let's let uh, us assume that we are we can live in that world if we're not living in it now so we can end this on kind of a positive note because one of the unfortunate things about right now and the like the social political landscape of the world is that we have all this horrible stuff coming around. There's so many downbeat moments. So let's let's end this on a positive thing where it's like, hey, look, you and I both design kung fu games as modern American white dudes, and we do so out of a place of love and out of a genuine love for the cultures and mythologies of the people that originated them. So like, and like, I can speak for David in that regard too. David Ramirez, the guy that's writing it, the guy lives in China. He is in love with that culture. So, so yeah, this, this is a this is a positive place, and we really want to make certain we are sharing the the things that we love about these. I mean, admittedly, foreign and non-native cultures of ours. No. So that's that's the thing. I want I want to end it there. Like it's this this particular tangent, okay. I want it to be really positive. All right, I'll, that, well, I'll I'll give you the last word then. And so right, I guess you. yeah, we've kind of gone off on a on a on a in a direction we weren't anticipating. <laughs> South with this so, one. So we'll we'll go to the next segment then. All right, so now we're just going to end with, uh, you know, after after that really extravagant detour into the world of politics, um, we will we will end with um, just our, you know, just us sharing stuff that we've we've gamed or that we've seen that we think might be relevant here. Um, something that that I uh, was able to play uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think I got two sessions in, and we're still looking for a third session. Maybe we got three sessions. By the way, we we had a couple of Saturdays or so. Uh, I got a chance to play Hill Folk, which is a game that is is really kind of outside my normal range of of, of play styles, um, and and uh, and and I really enjoyed myself. I had a, I had a lot of fun playing it, but it was very different. It was a very it's a very different approach, and I didn't get to experience the whole game because there's like a whole aspect of play that we just never came up yet in the uh, in the sessions that we're running. Uh, but uh, but basically in Hill Folk, it's one of these games where you sort of structure things around scenes and the players have a certain amount of control in terms of determining when they enter a scene and things like that and what the scene is. Um, and so what I found it was good for was number one, getting kind of um, like a soap opera style of play where it's all focused on the dialogue and the conversation. Um, the difficult thing that I found for me as a player is I'm not accustomed to stepping outside of my character and saying, okay, now, you know, this scene is going to be in the woods, you know, where the, where the body has been dismembered. And you know what I mean? Like it's, if you, if you, if you're not on the ball, it can, it can be difficult. But what I really enjoyed about the game was the actual scenes themselves because they were so focused on the dialogue and, and so, so what's what's Hill Folk about? Like like context wise, like what's the thesis of the game? Well, I wasn't running it, so I don't know the the full extent of the rules. It's by Robin Laws, and it really kind of takes things like he's had games that venture into this territory. This one really sort of goes full full bore into the um, into like the idea of focusing on drama 
and to the to the extent that everything is structured around that and it gets it, it gets into sort of you know like uh very experimental uh mechanics for for managing it um and so i don't think it's going to be something that work for like a, if you're a game that if you're a group that really like sort of like a much more traditional structure to play it's it's probably not your cup of tea but um but i was again i was in, i really enjoyed the the when those scenes happened the the focus was so much on what the characters were saying and uh um and and everybody had a very because when you're playing your character in every scene you're supposed to have like you you have something that you want to get out of the scene it's basically it takes like acting stuff and puts it into a role playing context and and so, you know, again, for soap opera style play, it was real. I found it very effective. Um, it, again, it's 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 not a style that I'm as familiar with, so I don't know. I'm sure there might be other games that that get into this that do things that, uh, but I'm not as aware of them. Um, it sounds like a it sounds like a fiasco. Did you ever did you ever play that one? I haven't played it. I have a copy of it, but I've never played it. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of similarity in Fiasco. I think where you're you're asked as a player to have a more active hand in like the structure of scenes and, and things like that. But the thing is, I read Fiasco, and this seems so different from that to me. Really? Um, yeah, I because this, this felt like I mean, again, I'm usually like I saw Fiasco, and I was kind of like, well, that looks nice. I want to try it just to see what it's like, but it's not really my cup of tea. Like it's not it's not the style of game I like to play. Um, but. But with Hill Folk, maybe it's just because Law's name is on it. My 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 opinion changed. But uh, it's good stuff. I but, whenever you said his name, I was like, that sounds familiar. I realized I just backed his uh, King and Yellow Kickstarter not too long ago. Okay. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I know you. He, he does good stuff. But uh, but but I mean, again, it's a very specific type of game. But but what it, what what it worked for was like I could see with that what what I thought it would be good for is if I wanted to run like I Claudius, like I wanted to really have the experience of I Claudius. That the system seemed like it would work well with that, um, you know. Again, you get you know just things that have a lot of melodrama and, and you know political intrigue and stuff like that. It, it sort of is well, all about that. Um, you intrigued me with that because like I, I like that stuff too. I mean, may, maybe that's a little mawkish, but I don't care. It's fun. Um, so where where are you rolling dice in this is it like i say something dramatic and i roll dice you know i should have paid more attention to what we were actually doing i don't <laughs> remember rolling at all I, we never oh. actually had a combat scene that was a thing so that was a part of the system that we never actually touched on um so it was all role play so the again the role play scenes they were all the only thing that was really different about them was we had you had resources that could allow you to do things like break into a scene so say there was a uh, say say like there was a scene between two characters deciding what to do about an impending invasion. You could you could use a resource to to insert yourself into that scene if you wanted to, um, and and so and I think you were even allowed I think you were allowed to go in the scene, but people could try to block you, and then that's when you would use the resource. I can't, I can't remember the exact rule, but but most of the mechanics seem stuff like that. Um, so it, it seems like the the core thing, the, the core, um, I want to call, I almost want to call it a resource of the game, is the dialogue itself. That's interesting. Like, how does that manifest? Like, uh, whenever you would in, introduce yourself into a scene, so, it would be to talk, I assume. Yeah. So, like, 
me about that. Like, develop that a little. Well, again, my, 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 my grasp of the system is a little bit fuzzy, but the I way... Here's an example. I mean, the, that'd be elucidating. The, the way that the game is sort of structured is you begin play by... You kind of create, like, a map of character relationships and establishing who's who and what people want and what's going on a little bit. It's almost like a, it's almost like a show Bible. Do you know what I mean? Like a TV series Bible. Uh, but, like, in really shorthand form. And that's all, that's all constructed at the start uh, of the game by everybody. And then once you have that, that kind of gives you what you need in order to, to launch into the scenes. And so I think, I think it's done in sort of sequential order where, you know, you start with, you know, one player and then you move, you move down, you know, you move from one to the next. And, and basically the whole, go, you know, the whole scene launching thing if I if I if I understood it correctly, was you know the the GM you know would would say to me you know like it's my turn like what do I want to do and so I'd I'd say okay I'm by the bank of the river with so and so and you know I'm I'm trying to con- you know and and I'm and I and I come there with a with with a with a pelt that I've just I've just acquired because I want her to make a uh, uh, a war cloak for our chieftain and. And so then once once I'm there, it's just me and that character talking. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 stuff it's stuff that emerges in in regular games. The only real difference is because every every scene you have something that you want from it and the other character has something that they want from it, it just naturally produces a little bit more of that soap opera type uh, play. You know, it, again, it it's 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 re- that really feels like the focus of the game. It feels like the, the character interactions, like sort of like how diplomacy plays. Well, there's very little rules in the game diplomacy, but like the 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 true game of diplomacy is convincing other people to do what you want them to do. Yeah. Uh, so like, since you have a goal in a scene, like a social goal, and you have no mechanics for pursuing that, you have to pursue that through the role play. So I like that. That's 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 a nifty way of kind of drawing it out of people. I think. Yeah. Actually. Okay. I did something similar with uh, Tiancheng, where, like, to get XP in that game, you have to... And actually, I sort of stole this, by the way, from Marvel Heroic Roleplay and the Cortex system, so thank you, Cam Banks, because, you know... Anyway, but to get XP in, in my game, you've got to do something that furthers your, your dharma, your destiny, and most of it is getting you into trouble in some way. Okay. And it's... And you... you it, there's a little back and forth of the GM where you're like, I want to do this thing because my dharma is telling me to do it, and they kind of, like, work with you to determine exactly how that's going to manifest in the game, and then you do it, and then okay. there's going to be whatever consequences, and you get XP. So, like, um, and I think it's kind of similar in the regard that the dharma has a goal, it's something that it wants you to do. Like, the, the, the Monkey King has got the chaos dharma, so it wants him to introduce some chaos into the world in, in kind of this structured, oh, helpful fashion. So, like, and like if, you, if you go through that PDF I sent you, like you'll see the the crazy stuff he's supposed to do, and like I, I have a good way and bad way of doing it. Like so, you can do it the the helpful make chaos work and induce important change. Then you have the eh, burnt the ground. But it sounds like what, what you've done is you've baked it into the cosmology itself, into the set. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- this is so. Th- I think that's the the big difference between that and this. And in this one, it's 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 sort of more of a you know part of the system. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, and that's probably how I would do it in, in one of my own games, is I would probably go more for the in-setting type, type thing. 
uh, I should have to. I should emphasize. I might be misunderstanding aspects of the system because I played it like two or three times, and I was just a player. I I uh, I, I didn't have access to the rulebook, so everything I was doing was based on what the GM was telling me. Um, so if I if I misunderstood a key point, I do apologize. But 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 I had fun. It was and the and the and the setting that we were using was sort of I guess like the the standard one. But there's a bunch of different. Uh, types of settings you can run it for it's not just meant to be the hill folk thing but we were like a primitive tribe sort of in the you know as just as like civilization is just starting to emerge was my understanding like uh um and and so you know it was interesting it, it was it was a fun session or fun two sessions um yeah, the, the clay that woke by uh, paul Sagan kind of got like a similar thing except it's a little more fantastical it's got like minotaurs and things like that okay but i remember seeing that kickstarter kind of when it popped up yeah, I actually wound up grabbing that post Kickstarter, which was a pretty penny because it doesn't have dice. It has these little pogs you've got to you've got to use with it. But like, it's it's a really nifty little game. It's the best like ninety-ish pages you'll ever read. So, and now you have something that's a little bit more, kind of in I think you know more my wheelhouse. Um, why don't you explain it? Okay, so. Um, as is probably fairly common knowledge about like both of us at this point, we're big fans of the old school Renaissance. We like old D and D, and one of the products that came out for that a little while ago was Yunsuin, the Purple Land, and it uh, it's it's kind of a setting book for just this this little sort of vaguely near Eastern slash Eastern setting with a little bit of kind of kooky weird elements to it, and like it's it's humble in that it doesn't really stretch far past that premise. But at the same time, it's it's extraordinarily complete and extremely useful for for making this this setting very vibrant and very unique whenever you use it. Um, I almost don't know how to talk about Yun Suen because what it basically is it's a collection of really short, really uh, impactful descriptions of this world, this this setting of Yun Suen, and like it's got all these different little chunks to it. Like there's like a forbidden city, and there's there's like this aristocracy of slug people, and there's magical drugs, so magical opium, and there's like these plain little grasshopper men, and like all this nifty stuff. But instead of being like these really long descriptive paragraphs, it's really short things. Mm. You get like half a paragraph, and it's like really, really rich and really imaginative, and it's really impactful. And then it's a chart, which is here's some stuff you find, and here's how you put that in your game. And the whole book is that it's just introduction of a really cool idea, a really cool setting thing. And a whole bunch of charts and elements that you can grab and make that just on the fly. And it is such an amazing tool for doing that. Like, I've ran... I, I use Yunsuin in almost every single game I run now. Mm -hmm. Because if I ever need something, even if I'm not in Yunsuin, like, even if I'm nowhere near that setting, I can pull stuff from it and be like, okay, in the far distant lands of Yunsuin, they, you know, they have this strange thing, and you found that here... Or you okay. find a merchant from Yun Suen, or, or whatever. You know, some strange monster comes at them, or a minor god, or, you know, a half of an ogre will hop at them with using dark magic and curses. And they're like, what's this? And I'm like, <laughs> I got it from Yun Suen. Good luck. Okay. Now, what, what would you say? Because, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people that see Yun Suen. All over, like I see the cover because I, I know that that pops up on Google Plus and Facebook and forums all the time. Um, but I'll bet there's a lot of people that have seen it and have not. They don't really know what it is. What's the big reason 
that is is it the is it the brevity of the entries and the imagine imaginative quality of them or is there something else that really makes this because it, it's clearly resonated with a lot of people it, it has and like there's a good reason for it if i had it, it's hard to point down one thing where i'm like this is the big idea because it's almost like like you know the old oriental adventures thing yeah talk about like a thing that's been lambasted for cultural appropriation is Oriental Adventures. It's called Oriental Adventures, dear Lord. But but there's a reason to love that book because there's a lot of really cool, fun stuff in it for your D&D game. It's like that, mm-hmm. except a million times better. And even though and it does a much better job of being respectful to the culture in kind of the same way that D&D is sort of respectful to Western cultural tropes, mm-hmm. this is kind of respectful to Eastern and Near Eastern cultural tropes. In that, it doesn't take them too seriously, and it uses them as kind of like the fertile soil in which to grow its own little brand of weirdness and gonzo stuff. Okay. And I actually chose it specifically because of the gonzo stuff, but since we've been talking about the cultural stuff, well, yeah. I mean, that's there too. Okay. So... The, the big thing is if you want something kind of exotic and, and that has that kind of same sort of cultural, real-world cultural bedrock of D&D, and you want it to mesh in, a, in an unusual and unexpected and interesting way, grab Yoon Suen. Because you can you can run a game in Yoon Suen. Like, like, what I would recommend is, like, if you're just going to straight up run a game in Yoon Suen, make traditional, like, Western D&D characters, start them on the boat, and they're in Yoon Suen. It's all weird. They get to learn about the strangeness and the exoticness of the culture firsthand. And then you can just make whole campaigns in it because it's just that complete. Uh, but you could also, like I said, you could just grab one little bit. Like at one point here in my most recent campaign, I had an island. And I'm like, I don't know what's on this island. But it's got an observatory and a jungle. So I just went to the jungle section and the observatory section. And I just grabbed some stuff from the charts and it just became its own little thing. Just like that. Bam, I've got everything I need for that island. I had a whole session worth of adventures there out of 30 seconds of referencing this book. So it's it's almost like a big bag of different kinds of seeds of exotic fruit, mm-hmm. and you don't know what the seeds are or what they do, but it has very good instructions on how to plant them, and then you, the, the growing of those seeds into weird fruit trees is what happens when you run the game. Okay. So that that's you and Suen. It's a it's a it's a bag of exotic and, and unexpected interesting things oh, you can okay. plant in your game. And and I gotta say I, I, I ran Oriental Adventures in both editions. I quite liked the uh, the material, yeah. but I think I, the, yeah, I think the big, the biggest trouble I had with Oriental Adventures was when I would try to do something specific. Like when I tried to do specifically a Wuxia campaign, you obviously have to sort of work around some of the elements, and, you know, because because in especially I think it, more in second edition than first edition. But in the second edition, they were more interwoven, and so I found it a little bit harder to kind of get the um, like the Japanese stuff into Japan and the Chinese stuff into China. But <laughs> but I, I I quite like them. I ran I ran I ran about at least two or three Wuxia campaigns with the uh, the second edition. Not this, not I'm sorry, not second edition, third edition uh, Oriental Adventures. Um, and uh, you know, and again. The, you know, with a lot of that material, so much of it is, uh, you kind of make of it what you will and turn it into your own. So, you know, that, that, uh, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to, uh, you wanted to go over before we head out? 
I could sing the praises of Yoon Soon for a long time. Okay. I'm not gonna lie to you. Like I, I'm really underselling it. Well, it's been nothing but praise, but like there's nothing but praise for that book. Like if you don't, oh, if you're an OSR I, guy or you like weird stuff, you don't own it. Go buy it. <laughs> it seems like, it seems like something that is pretty universally liked. Like I've seen a lot of a lot of people who often hold very different opinions uh, saying very good things about it. So you know, it, it seems like it's got a uh, you know, it's got good standing. Um, but, but, uh, what was it? I think, um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll end it here because we've been going for a long time and, and, uh, and we might have overwhelmed people with the, uh, the political stuff. Uh, and we'll be back next time. I don't know what we're going to cover. I think we, we have some things that we, we, we know we want to discuss, but we're gonna, we're gonna, um, we like, I didn't get into faded encounters and I kind of want to talk about that next time, but we'll, we'll, We'll see what we can what we can sort of work into it, and we'll have uh, to push the future a little bit. You know, if we're talking about faded stuff, um, I may have to. What what I might do is start talking about Exalt a little bit more. I don't want to be crit, like critical of the game because I do love it, but like it, it might be one of those really big ones to kind of tackle and talk about because in Exalted they have a, a kind of a kind of Exalt who is all about fate, and there was a lot of it's a, there's a lot of difficulty when you're talking about like being able to mess with fate and the future and predicting things. Mm-hmm. So like I've, I've ruminated on it for a while and then that'd be fun to talk about. So yeah, we can, we can, we'll, we'll see, you know, we might bring up that in or we'll, we'll see what we, what we have uh, when we, when we get to the next show and, and we'll obviously have some other movies and things like that. And also uh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing house of flying daggers on Wusha weekend and we'll be, you know, we're going to go through all three, of the of the Zhang Yimou uh, uh, wuxia films, and so we're gonna we're gonna start with we, we did Hero. Now we're on House of Flying Daggers, and then we're gonna do uh, Curse of the Golden Flower. So, sorry. Right, so uh, again, thanks for listening. We're we're you know we're very happy for all that that listened, and we will be back on hopefully in the next couple of weeks. <laughs>